This week in news, we'll cover Justice Ginsburg's passing, Trump's new Supreme Court nominee, updates on Breonna Taylor's case, and COVID-19. On September 18th, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died at 87 years old as a result of metastatic pancreas cancer. Appointed by President Clinton in 1993, she was the second woman appointed to the Supreme Court and served for over 27 years. An incredibly influential advocate for women's rights, RBG spent much of her time as Supreme Court Justice fighting gender discrimination. She is the first woman to lie in state in the U.S. Capitol, an incredibly high honor given to Americans who have contributed their lives in service to the country. Her last words were that she wished not to be replaced until a new president is elected, something that has stirred great controversy over the last week. President Trump has said that he expects to announce his nominee for Justice Ginsburg's seat on Saturday at 5 p.m., and that he's considering five potential women for this position. His leading contenders are said to be Judge Amy Coney Barrett from Chicago and Judge Barbara Legault from Atlanta. Should either of these women be appointed, according to Senator Mitch McConnell, they could be confirmed by the Senate very quickly. This would have a significant impact on the balance of the court and, as a result, could create a stronger Republican stance on issues such as abortion, health care, and women's rights, amongst others. The entire situation is extremely hypocritical, though. Democrats have brought up the GOP's argument in 2016 that Obama couldn't appoint a new justice before the election, but are backtracking on that statement and fast-tracking Justice Ginsburg's replacement. With updates on Breonna Taylor's case, on March 13, 2020, Breonna Taylor was fatally shot in her own apartment by the police during the execution of a, quote, no-knock warrant. She was only 26 years old when she was shot by the Louisville, Kentucky police officers who allegedly executed a search warrant on the wrong home. The police received a request for this no-knock warrant the day before due to an investigation of Breonna Taylor's ex-boyfriend, Jamarcus Glover, who was, according to the police, using Taylor's address to mail drugs through the post office. At midnight on the day of the attack, three police officers, Miles Cosgrove and Brett Hankinson, and Sergeant Jonathan Mattingly, barged through her apartment door, at which point the officers say they were met with a gunshot that striked Mattingly on the thigh. The officers then blindly fired 25 more bullets, eight of which striked Taylor, effectively killing her in her sleep, as reported by Kenneth Walker. Walker, who was Taylor's boyfriend at the time and a licensed gun owner, fired the initial bullet as he believed a home invasion was in progress according to his 911 call. The officers found no drugs in Taylor's apartment. Many of the Black Lives Matter protests advocated for justice for Breonna Taylor, and the charges against Kenneth Walker were dismissed on May 22nd as the FBI opened their own investigation on her death. On June 15th, the city of Louisville announced it had reached a record $12 million settlement with Taylor's family and Hankinson was fired on June 23rd, as the department's internal investigation found that Hankinson violated procedure when he fired 10 rounds into Taylor's apartment while executing the warrant. These actions, while optimistic, were rendered effectively useless, as on September 23rd, a Kentucky grand jury, led by Daniel Cameron, stated that the investigation found that Mattingly and Cosgrove were, quote, justified in their use of force after having been fired upon by Kenneth Walker, end quote. So none of the officers were charged in Taylor's death. Even after the protests and fatalities resulting in fighting for Brianna's name, justice has still not been found for Taylor, which reveals a pertinent flaw in our justice system and society as a whole. On an optimistic note, on Wednesday, Johnson & Johnson announced that their COVID-19 vaccine trials are entering the fourth and final stage. 
Although they're the third pharmaceutical company to reach this stage, their vaccine trial will be the largest with 60,000 participants. Johnson & Johnson has said that they may know whether it is effective by the end of 2020. In addition, this vaccine seems promising because it uses technology that has a history of safety in other vaccines and it will possibly only require one shot rather than two, and it does not need to be frozen during transportation to hospitals. Johnson & Johnson has started producing this vaccine in large quantities to be prepared to distribute it should the final trial indicate that it's safe and effective. So the next segment of our podcast is gonna transition to talking about the impact of coronavirus in prisons and how systematic oppression has led to mass incarceration, which puts even more individuals at risk for coronavirus. Yeah, and a lot of the history behind mass incarceration starts off with a loophole in the 13th Amendment. Um, As everyone probably knows, uh, with the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865, slavery was deemed unconstitutional. However, there was a clause that stated that slavery was allowed as a punishment for a crime. Um, And this constitutional loophole allowed uh, those incarcerated to be forced to work without constitutional rights granted to them. And this was a way of exploiting free labor. And it targeted Black people because of racist prejudices that labeled Black people as criminals. Because of the rise of the drug trade, communities such as African-Americans and Latinx folk were main targets and which led to mass incarceration. During the late 1960s, drug use became much more common and was seen as recreational among young white middle-class Americans who saw drugs as representative of protest and rebellion against the government. And this was particularly during the political unrest around the Vietnam War. Uh, And kind of because of the use of recreational drugs uh, such as marijuana and cocaine uh, that were historically found in black and Latinx communities, these communities were particularly targeted for the widespread use of these drugs. Uh, In uh, 1976 to 1977, there was kind of a positive perception of drug use. You know, there was an undermining of the dangers of using drugs. And some examples include Jimmy Carter campaigning to decriminalize marijuana and cocaine being glamorized by the media in uh, things like movies. The rise of the drug trade occurred in 1978 to 1986, primarily through Colombia in the early 1980s which then moved to Mexico and led to more and more violence, the implementation of task forces and an extradition treaty between Colombia and the US. In 1987, however, the Colombia extradition treaty was annulled. And now getting more into the detail of the war on drugs from 1968 to 1970, several drug use prevention policies are enacted. Organizations like the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs and the Narcotics Treatment Administration were created. And in 1971, Nixon officially declares the war on drugs and creates the Special Action Office for Drug Abuse Prevention. And an important thing to note is that the Nixon era was actually the only time where funding during the war on drugs mostly went to treatment of uh, criminals instead of law enforcement. And in 1974, Nixon resigns. And this kind of shows a shift in policy where uh, funding started going towards law enforcement. In 1986, Reagan signed an Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which enacted mandatory minimums, which, as the name implies, required a minimum sentence in prison for possession of various drugs, which typically was around five to ten years. And an example of an unfair policy was that there's a disparity of five years, which eventually resulted in 95% of federal drug offenders pleading guilty. And as we saw in Just Mercy, Um, A lot of these people who are incarcerated are from underrepresented and low economic status, 
and they can't afford in prison for five grams of crack versus 500 grams of cocaine, and which caused a lot of backlash as these two drugs were essentially identical. Attorneys to help defend their innocence, which led to so many of them, you know, having to plead guilty. And from 1988 to 1994, the war on drugs kind of continue. And in 1995, there was a lot of reform, particularly regarding mandatory minimums. One of the primary reasons being racial disparities. So how does this all relate to today? Um, current mass incarceration is at an all-time high and systematic oppression, as we've seen, is still very prevalent in our community today. Some general statistics include that the U.S. has close to 25% of the world's prison population, despite the fact that the U.S. only represents 5% of the world's population, and the incarcerated population in the U.S. has increased by 700% since 1970. Um, despite drug-related crimes committed at the same rates among all races, there was still more contact between African Americans and police compared to others. A common argument is that since crime is typically higher in minority neighborhoods, more police are needed there. However, this ignores historical racial segregation and the economic disparity between other communities and the need for some of these communities to commit crimes and um, do what they need to do to survive. Right. And some more statistics to back this are that people of color are 37% of the U.S. population, yet they're 67% of the prison population. Um, One-sixth of Latino boys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime, and a third of Black boys born today can also expect to go to prison in their lifetime. And while policy has improved now, one, it still needs work, and two, the effects of mass incarceration, particularly during the war on drugs, still has an impact on people today, especially people of color and their communities. Due to the rise of COVID-19, incarcerated people are infected by this virus at five times the nation's overall rate. In May of 2020, eight of the 10 largest outbreaks in the U.S. were in jails and prisons. And as of late August, 160,000 incarcerated people and staff have been infected. But this doesn't even show the entire amount of people infected because there is such limited testing in jails and prisons. The typical death rate of inmates is 39 per 100,000, which is higher than the national rate rate of 29 deaths per 100,000. And even then, there's actually dramatic underreporting of COVID cases in prisons. In just jails alone, the estimated death tolls are off by about 100,000. The number of inmates released in the U.S. pales in comparison to the tens of thousands of nonviolent criminals released in other countries. And the number of inmates released here is just isn't a large enough number to make a significant impact on the spread of COVID-19 in correctional facilities. Added on to that, prisoners are generally more vulnerable than the average person because of several factors, including uh, a lack of social distancing, uh, particularly with overcrowding. At the end of 2018, prison custody population in 25 states, plus the Federal Bureau of Prisons, either filled or exceeded their maximum beds. There is also a higher number of elderly due to increasing life sentences. There are nearly 200,000 incarcerated people over the age of 55, which is a number that has spiked by nearly 300% over the last 20 years. Another factor is that the lifestyle in prison with poor food and minimal movement causes worse health. Uh, about 40% of people in prison have at least one chronic health condition, such as asthma or diabetes, which makes these individuals a lot more vulnerable to COVID-19. There's also just a lack of access to quality medical care for these high-risk individuals. So because people of color are overrepresented in jails and prisons, as well as correctional staff, they can bring the virus home to their families and cause this spread to those that aren't in jail as well. Racial disparities in COVID-19 deaths can continue to grow if we don't do something about minimizing the virus in these prisons.
While the need for reform, specifically in the criminal justice system, has been necessary since the creation of the system, through the rise of Black Lives Matter movement and the protests arguing for change, our generation has shown that we have the greatest potential to make a significant impact on the unjust policies that perpetuates racism in our country. Speaking of which, here's an example of a recent organization started by a Crystal alum who is not only advocating for change, but is also spreading awareness of the prevalent injustices that occur in the criminal justice system today. In this segment, we will be quoting Serena, Deb, and Kaylee verbatim, um, and we have received their permission to do this. So could you tell us a little bit about your work and what you do? We are Serena and Kaylee, the co-founders of Jailed for Melanin, an advocacy organization and online resource dedicated to addressing the disproportionate impact of mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex to marginalized communities. Our website includes a comprehensive overview and history of mass incarceration and the war on drugs in the United States, as well as gray statistics on the issue, vignettes of people of color who are unfairly treated by the criminal justice system, resources for learning more, and, the, and information on voting and disenfranchisement. On the actionable side, our website serves two purposes. First, we are a one-stop resource for getting help for people affected by this issue through offering our users with a quote, know your rights page, end quote, and an interactive map to contact local resources. In addition, we empower users who want to make change through a take action page where they can easily sign petitions, send templates urging action to their representatives, get info on divesting from the industrial complex, support advocacy organizations, follow one of our challenges, or use our voter guide. Outside of our website, we keep our audience updated on the issues of mass incarceration through blogs, a newsletter, and social media outreach. Ultimately, our goal is to educate people on the issues of mass incarceration, help impact the communities, and support our audience to become better advocates. Can you talk about your experience with criminal justice? We have always been passionate about social justice, civic engagement, and public service. In high school, we led a club called Women Driving Change, dedicated to gender equity, and also were involved in advocacy and activism. After watching movies like 13th and Just, Just Mercy, and learning more about the criminal justice policy and reform in school, we became very passionate about addressing the issue through education. Serena specifically said, I became interested in criminal justice after working for my congresswoman and learning about how the criminal justice system disproportionately affects minorities and other marginalized communities. This sparked my curiosity to learn more about mass incarceration and the industrial complex. Our next question was, would you mind sharing your opinions on legalization of marijuana and more specifically how certain nuances may or may not disproportionately affect underrepresented members of our community? They responded with, the criminalization of marijuana disproportionately harms black, brown, and low-income communities. African-Americans are arrested for violating marijuana possession laws at nearly four times the rates of whites, yet both ethnicities consume marijuana at roughly the same rates. Since the war on drugs started during the Nixon and Reagan presidencies, the prison population in America has risen astronomically, nearly 800% hitting marginalized people the most. We know that communities of color are over-policed and we know that people of color are more likely to be stopped and searched by the police. Inevitably, this means that these same communities are being arrested at higher rates and due to racial bias deeply ingrained in the justice system, convicted and jailed at higher rates as well. The decriminalization of marijuana is a vital step towards eradicating racial disparities in drug arrests and ending the mass incarceration of minority communities in our country. Black and brown communities are targeted by marijuana laws by nature of over-policing and historic discrimination, 
So in order to reverse these effects, we need to work towards decriminalization. Legalization is one form of decriminalization that works. In California, where marijuana is legal for recreational usage, citizens consume this drug at similar rates to other states despite the different laws. The decriminalization or legalization of marijuana is an implacable component of racial justice in America. We, um, as a podcast group, also wanted to add um, that one of the nuances in the California laws states that essentially those who are previously convicted of drug possession, um, whether violent or nonviolent crimes, are still not allowed to sell marijuana. And this still disproportionately harms black and brown communities as um, these people aren't allowed to sell and have to resort to illegal means and um, to make profit, which harms them and further perpetuates mass incarceration targeted at these communities. The next question is, what do you believe is the best course of action for making a tangible change in mass incarceration and combating the systemic oppression that leads to the abuses of power in the criminal justice system? You can check out our proposed policy reforms for more details, but a comprehensive strategy for criminal justice reform will include the abolition of for-profit prisons, incentivizing states to reduce prison populations through a reverse crime bill, getting rid of money bill, strengthening resources for public defenders, and ending the over-policing of communities of color and people with mental illness. It will mean supporting people who are released from prison through advocating for fair chance hiring policies, reconsidering blanket felon disenfranchisement in most states, and constructing robust mental health and reentry programs. Finally, it will mean a deep and painful review of the policies and practices that lead to racial disparities in arrests and convictions and leaders that are willing to translate rhetoric into concrete, concrete action. Our next question was, what is something you hope to communicate with our generation and how we can directly help? They said, activism and advocacy starts with education and making the effort to learn about the perspective and experience of others. We want to communicate the importance of actively seeking out other perspectives and engaging in civil discourse, whether it is in the classroom around a curriculum, in your friend groups, or within your own family. These conversations are at the root of learning, building empathy, and becoming an advocate of what you believe in. Take the time to listen for the sake of learning where someone is coming from and not to win. We are passionate about addressing issues of social injustice, such as gender inequality, racial discrimination, access to education, and more. But whatever that may be for others, we hope that they are open to seeking those insightful conversations. It may help you dissect your biases and assumptions and understand a fuller picture of the world. Once you know what you believe in and why, it is important to make sure your actions reflect that. That includes the typical things that may come to mind, like starting a nonprofit, running for a political position, solving challenges specific to your passion, but also using your voice to make sure others are heard, having the courage to bring up difficult conversations, empowering and supporting others in their advocacy, and so much more. Nothing is too big or too small. A great place to start is watching films like 13th and Hidden Figures, web series like Jubilee's Middle Ground, Of the Skin Deeps, and books like Technically Wrong and The New Jim Crow, websites like ours and the Equal Justice Initiative, and finally attending conferences or workshops by campus clubs and so much more. Our final question was, why do you feel that curriculum teaching students about mass incarceration is important? They responded saying, Systemic change starts with education. Students will be our future voters, policymakers, and leaders. And part of the reason why mass incarceration continues to be such a pervasive issue is that a lot of people don't know about it. 
We should learn about the criminal justice system in our schools, its strengths, flaws, and the role that we play in it. A good education is a necessary component of becoming a responsible and principled voter, and our schools can empower students to do just that. Mass incarceration is an issue that affects every American in one way or another. 13% of black adults in the United States cannot vote due to a felony conviction, and people of color are grossly overrepresented in the criminal justice system. This issue extends beyond the cells of prison. People who are incarcerated have a harder time accessing government benefits, getting jobs, maintaining good mental health, obtaining housing, and reintegrating into society. Many of these people are nonviolent drug offenders whose stories might have been different based on the color of their skin. This is an issue that is perpetuating systemic racism in our country, and we need students to be aware of it and to begin to work towards change. We just wanted to give a warm thank you to Serena and Kaylee for volunteering their times and enthusiastically responding to our questions. And we hope this inspires our audience and helps make a change in the long prevailing history of systematic oppression in our country. All right, that's good. Yep. Mm -hmm.